Let's do this. We're going to be in Nahum chapter 1. We're going to go verse 9 through 15, Nahum chapter 1. If you weren't here last week or if you're online and you didn't get to hear last week's, I would implore you to listen to last week's. It helps to set the context for what's going on here uh, in this minor prophet. Um, So Nahum chapter 1, we'll look in verses 9 through 15. Now, as we get into the text, I want to talk a little bit about the word repentance Because it plays into our text of what we're talking about today. Now, the title of the message is Comfort and Calamity. Comfort and Calamity. Calamity for the really unrepentant Assyrians. Calamity and comfort for God's people. Comfort for God's people, but calamity for the ungodly Assyrians. Now, just so you understand, the Assyrians... About 125, 150 years earlier, had already got the message of the good news. They had got the message of who the one true God was from the most reluctant preacher ever, Jonah. And there was like a nationwide repentance. The city repented. Great repentance. And you recall at the end of Jonah, he was pretty upset about God's graciousness to save who were Israel's enemies, the Assyrians. Which is kind of interesting. This last week I was thinking, you know... Jonah wishes he would have had Nahum's message, you know. That's what he really wished he would have had. But isn't that just like the Lord? He doesn't really give us all the things that we just want, but he gives us exactly what we're needing. So we find here that we have Assyria. They have gone rebellious against the Lord. They, and they think that they can. But the Lord says in his word here that you've got some problems, Assyria, and it's time to experience calamity. You've been unrepentant. And here's the deal about them. They have no excuse. Assyria has no excuse. The commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, had made it in there. They had national repentance. They had no excuse for the continued direction that the Assyrians had. They were at a very low point as a nation when Jonah came in. And then we start to see Assyria ascending even higher and higher in the next 150 or so years. But their repentance was short-lived. It maybe only lasted a generation. And obviously, by the time we get to this text, Assyria had already done lots of evilness. And it was time for them to be judged. But here's the thing I want to talk about repentance. They had a very short-lived repentance. Now, here's the thing about repentance. When we say the word repent, what we're meaning is a change of heart that results in a change of life. That's what we call godly repentance. Godly repentance, okay? A change of heart that results in a change of life. Godly repentance. Then we have what's called ungodly repentance. Ungodly repentance. That is, you might have a change of life, but not necessarily a change of heart. Now, I would tell you, a lot of times when people say, I've repented, it's ungodly repentance. A change of life, but not a change of heart. When I look at the Assyrians, I wonder, that first generation after Jonah probably, yeah, had some godly repentance, a change of heart, change of life. But then I wonder the next generation, or even some, maybe they just had what would be called an ungodly repentance, a worldly repentance, a change of life, but not a change of heart. Now here's the difference between the two, really. When you have godly repentance, just for today, I guess this is the godly side of the stage, right? This is the, you know, so... Those are where the sinners belong. So we have the godly repentance. It kind of looks like this. There's two different ways to look at repentance. There is turning to God from sin. To God from sin. Turning from sin to God. They might go like, that sounds like the same exact thing, Nick. Actually, no, it's a big difference. Godly repentance, you turn to God from sin. All right. That means sin, let's pretend sin is over here. There, let's pretend it's on this side. Actually, I should walk over here, guys, because isn't this my bad side today, right? Let's pretend that sin's over here, and I'm repenting, and sin's in this direction. If I'm turning to God from sin, it looks like this. I'm just going to the Lord, right? That's turning to God from sin. But this is what ungodly repentance looks like. Here's the sin. And the person goes, huh, yeah, but man, that feels so much better. You get me? You get the difference? Turning to God from sin, turning from sin to God. 
Because if you're looking back still, aren't you a lot like Lot's wife, right? Big difference. So what's probably happening with the Assyrians and all the judgment that the book of Nahum is going to chronicle and prophesy that's coming on them? I think what we see with the Assyrians is this kind of short-lived repentance. Short-lived repentance is ungodly repentance. Now, I'm, I, maybe that first generation, but however it passed down, it didn't make its way into the continued generations. And they had an ungodly repentance, it would seem, a worldly repentance, a turning from sin to God, not to God from sin. And there's a big difference. By the way, do this. Hold your place in Nahum right here and just turn over to Exodus chapter 20. And let me just show you a couple of ways that we see that even they, maybe the next generation, but there was a short-lived repentance for these Assyrians. When you look in Exodus chapter 20, you get the Ten Commandments. And just so you know, these are the moral commands of God. They didn't pass off the scene. They're still here. You don't, you don't, we don't do the Ten Commandments to earn our way into heaven. We do the Ten Commandments. We obey them as a result of having heaven. As a result of Jesus being our Lord and King, we obey the Ten Commandments. Not to earn righteousness, but because of the righteousness that's in us. But by the way, it helps us to know that we're sinners nonetheless. We need it. Look at verse 3. Here's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. When you read the history of the Assyrians, actually, I don't have to read the history. You can look at some of the Assyrian attack on Judah in 701, and you can see, even in 722, and see that that was involved, all right? That would have been something that would have been discipled to the Assyrians when they repented. Look at verse 4 of Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on earth beneath, or that is under the water of the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God. If you read, even in the text, Sennacherib, the king that was in charge, when they, when Assyria tried to attack Judah in 701, he dies after that while worshiping Nisroch, the false god. Right? little piece of trivia. Did any of y'all like Powerade? Anybody like Powerade to drink Powerade? I got one person, okay? Guess what everybody's getting you for your birthday today, right? Stock up on the Powerade. Powerade years ago made a trial version of a Powerade called Nisroch, right? And I guess it failed because it was named after an idol. I don't know. But then you go to verse 7. Here's the third commandment. You shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes him in vain. They had broken all three of those. Now you might go, in vain, where do we see that? Well, you know, taking the Lord's name in vain, a lot of people think is just don't cuss. You know, and so you're thinking like, man, as long as I don't use the cuss, Jesus' name in a cuss word or God's name, I'm good. But you actually know taking the Lord's name in vain, it, yes, it, it would mean that. But also it would have this idea of when you name, in, in their covenant community of Israel, when they named Yahweh as their God, you're naming his character and his name reflects on your identity, on who you are. So what does it look like to take the Lord's name in vain today? It would be going around saying, I am a blood-bought, born-again Christian, and then disarming that idea by your lifestyle. It's saying, I belong to him, but, but we live like hell the rest of the week. All right? That would be taking the Lord's name in vain, being a representative of him, of his character and who he is. So... Just those three commands are clear from history. But even when you look and you read Chronicles and Kings, you, and even Isaiah, you can see that this is actually the Assyrians already. They are commandment breakers. They have, I would call, a worldly repentance in the long term, not a godly repentance. And thus they fall to it. Now do this. You're in Nahum still. No, we're just talking about repentance and the calamity that comes on a person's life as a result of unrepentance. By the way, aren't you glad you came and got, in the, got out in the eyes today to talk about repentance, right? Isn't that great? Aren't you glad? This side's not glad because you're obviously the sinful side, right? This side may be a little bit more godly, right? Y'all kind of, you know. <laughs> ah, yes, there you go. Catch 22 here. All right, Second Corinthians chapter 7. Hold your place in Nahum. I promise we're going to get there. Second Corinthians chapter seven. 
Let me just read for you so you understand the difference um, in the text of, have you ever wondered, like, how do I know I can forgive somebody? Like, you forgive somebody from the heart already between you and the Lord, but how do you assess someone's repentance when a person is repenting to you? Like, how do you know, like, man, are they really repentant? How do I know that this person is, you know, are they in this side where it's really ungodly repentance and they, yeah, they feel sorry for what they've done to God and me, but it's really they're still looking back at their sin. They love it. You'll often see this when it comes to adultery. It's where one spouse is trying to assess, the is the other spouse really repentant? You know, they're trying to look at it, right? Is it godly or ungodly repentance? Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's what you'll find. Paul talks about it. He says, look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll start in verse 9. He says in verse 9, I rejoice not because you grieve, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that no suffering of loss through us. Then he says this, verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance, a godly repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, which would be worldly repentance, leads to death. I'll give you an example. Judas, he has what I would call ungodly repentance. In the end, it just leads him to death. He goes out and commits suicide because he tries to run to himself for forgiveness and not to the Savior. You see, Peter denies Christ three times, but after the resurrection, he's coming back to the Lord, restoring the relationship. Now look when verse 11. Here's some evidences of godly repentance. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you what eagerness to clear yourselves you'll find that when a person is repentant but the godly repentance they're not really concerned about holding up their reputation anymore there's a reputation of the savior and his forgiveness through the shed blood that is more superior if they've been cleared before the lord why would they try to hide out their confession of sin to you what indignation you're going to see that person talk differently and think differently and respond differently to sin no longer will they Will they look back at that sin as Lot's wife looked? They'll see an indignation. What fear of God? You'll see a, a fear and an awe of God. What longing, what zeal in their life, what punishment. Whatever consequences come as a result of their sin, they're willing to take it and not bemoan it. When you see those things, you're kind of like, oh, wait a minute. This person has, they're over here. They have turned to God from sin and not from sin to God, still looking longingly back to sin. Where do I think Assyria was at? I think they were over here. Now, the first generation, second generation, next, I think, think somewhere they're circling around over here. And you can see, as you look in the scriptures and history, that these are people that are not repenting. And by the way, this is a good word. Repentance is a good word. We should confess our sin. Here's a question. Have you ever just confessed your sin? Like in your marriages, have you ever just confessed your sin? Have you actually used that ugly, ugly word, the S word, sin? Or has it been more of like, well, I apologize for what I've done, but only did it, you know? That's typically how it works. Have you ever said, I sinned against God, I sinned against you, will you forgive me? So, go back to Nahum. I want you to have a background for understanding ungodly repentance, godly repentance, where we're circling around in the long-standing look at the nation of Assyria. And you're going to find we come into verse 9. And he's talking about Assyria. And what you find here in the text is in verse 1 through 8, he's really speaking in third person kind of hymn of reflection about the warrior God Yahweh. We talked about that last week. This week it's kind of second person. And he's speaking to Assyria. But the, the thing here is Assyria is not even hearing this message. Remember, Jonah goes to Assyria and preaches the message. Well, Nahum is not actually preaching this message to Assyria. He is, but he's not. Assyria is personified in the text. This is the judgment that's coming on them. But yet they're not actually here hearing it. And I ask myself, why would that? Why would he pronounce a judgment on Assyria and Assyria not get a chance to repent? Well, it's probably because Assyria has gone too far. Any of y'all remember the movie Old Yeller? Y'all remember the movie Old Yeller? How many of y'all remember the movie Old Yeller, right? If you're wondering as parents, what's a good old movie to watch with your kids? It's Old Yeller. I've not done it yet because, you know, we all know what happens at the end, right? But if you remember, at the very end of the movies, and if you haven't listened to it, maybe just block out what I'm about to say, but you all, you all know the application, or you can see it. You remember Old Yeller got to the point 
of having rabies, right? And what, when that happens, nothing you can do. You've already gone too far. I can't, once that happens, like old yeller couldn't come back from it. You get what I'm saying? What's happening with Assyria? They've got rabies. They've, it's already set in. The judgment is coming on them. There's, there's no way to counteract what's happening. That's why I don't think Assyria is hearing this message from Nahum. They're being personified in the text. Judgment is being pronounced. But don't sit here and think to yourself, oh, poor Assyria. They never had a chance. Yeah, they had a chance. 125 to 150 years earlier, God had given them a great chance. But now it's time for that chance to end. And calamity is being pronounced on them. Now, when you look in verse 9 through 15, it's really hard. I mean, if, if you want to find out when the book of Nahum was written, man, more power to you. I've read so many commentaries and think I think my own thoughts. I kind of think it was sometime probably during Manasseh's reign, probably bleeding off into Josiah's reign potentially. But you're going to get all over the scope of the map. But here's what you do find. Sometimes when you look at a text like Nahum, you find that sometimes when something's being personified, it could be speaking to a, something directly, but also have implications for the future. Now, when we're looking at verses 9 through 11, I see a clarity that he must be speaking. Although this event's already happened, he's speaking towards an event that's already happened in the past. In 701, Assyria came down to Judah and, and tried to conquer them with Sennacherib as the king. And they were thwarted by God's hand. This is all during Hezekiah's reign. And we find in verses 9 through 11, well, let's talk about some of the unrepentance that Assyria had in the middle of this plot. It says in verse 9, what do, you pl- what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. I think he's talking about this 701 time where they came down. If you know the story, 185,000 Assyrians were slaughtered by the Lord without Judah helping. And in fact, Assyria had already conquered a lot of the outlying territories. And according to historical records, I mean, even even Assyrian records talk about how Hezekiah was kind of locked up in the capital. And God overthrows them miraculously. You can read that actually in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. You can read it in Isaiah chapter 37 about this happening. But here's what you find in the text. Look in verse 9. What do you plot against the Lord? Will you make a complete end? Trouble will not rise up a second time. Assyria was thinking, well, the Lord helped us conquer the northern kingdom of Israel in 722. The Lord will help us do it again in 701. In fact, when you read Isaiah, one of the commanders of the Assyrians say, this is what the Lord wants, like the Lord's commanded us to do this. They're plotting an unrepentant Assyria plots against the Lord. And obviously it fails because the Lord overthrows them. And then, then Sennacherib is back in Assyria worshiping Nisroch, the Powerade God. And God takes his life. Worshiping idols. Here's a kind of application point. Unrepentant Assyria plots against the Lord. When a person's walking in ungodly repentance, you'll see a plotting in their life. A plotting against the Lord. I mean, it could look in so many different ways. For instance, the person could justify their lying. Maybe a person is unrepentant for the lying in their life, but they're using some kind of justified means in their, in their head of like, yeah, I, had the, I lied, but I did that because I had to. No, that's a commandment breaking. Or you'll see a person walking on godly repentance. They'll try to manipulate God. They'll try to say, God, like I, I'll change this if you'll just do this. Plotting. By the way, you even see this in people who are not in Christ, who are far from God, never repented and made Jesus their Lord and King. Um, you'll find them doing this in this thing where I'll see all the time where you'll talk to a person and go, hey, man, like, are you ready to repent? Are you ready to come to Jesus? And they'll say something like, well, I've got some things I need to work out in my life first, and then I'll come to Jesus. Kind of like, let's put on the three-piece suit and get all cleaned up and then come to Jesus. What are they doing? You're just plotting, Right. You don't get yourself cleaned up and come to Jesus. How can you clean yourself up when you're already dirty? Right? You come to him, then he's the one that cleans you. But plotting against the Lord, this is what people in unrepentance do. They try to find their own way. By the way, you even see believers do this, which, by the way, an oxymoron would be an unrepentant believer. Believers repent. We don't plot. But here's what Assyria is doing. They're plotting against the Lord. They're saying, 
you did, you helped us do this in 722. We're going to do this again in 701. And if you read the records, you'll find they were sorely mistaken. But not only that, look in verse 10. So not only did they plot against the Lord, this unrepentant Assyria, but the unrepentant Assyria had little hope of success. When you're walking in unrepentance, there's little hope of success. When you're saying, I'm turning to, I'm turning from sin to God, it won't work. Here's Assyria. They're, they're, trying to, they're, they're trying to plot against the Lord. And look in verse 10. Here's how successful it will be. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. In 701, when they tried to come down and take over Judah, it, was, it had no hope of success. Although they lied and said that it was God's will, it wasn't. Although they tried to frighten Judah, it wasn't. They were like entangled thorns. Have you ever just tried to just man up and run through a thorn bush just thinking like I can make it? Yeah, not going to be very successful. You ever seen a person that was just intoxicated trying to function in the normal functions of life? Not going to happen. You ever seen straw get burned? Or dry grass, stubble? Burns up pretty fast. So he's saying that they have as much hope of success as someone who's intoxicated or someone who is, or like a hay that is being dried up, that is being, that is being burned and resisting that. They have no ability to resist. By the way, just a side note, this message isn't about alcohol, but just a side note. For those of you that have been reading our one year chronology reading, um, I haven't had a chance to upload some of my daily observations, but a lot of you we're asking questions about Leviticus 10, about um, Aaron's two sons that got burned up by offering strange fire. What was that all about? Well, I'll tell you one thing. Um, there's a lot of debate about what that strange fire was. But when you read the text of chapter 10, you're under, it's clear to see that alcohol was involved in that. Meaning that his sons had obviously come in and done that under some intoxicating uh, type of mentality. And that when a person is intoxicated, they lose sight of reality in the moment. And they offered strange fire. So just a side note, if you're kind of like, man, do I have something to repent over? If you are given over to drunkenness, then yes, that is something to repent over. And if you want to know if you're, you want to know if you're really a drunkard, just ask your family. <laughs> ask them and say like, am I addicted to alcohol? Ask your family that. You know, and you're like, my spouse won't tell me the truth on that. Okay, go ask your kids. <laughs> From the mouth of babes, they'll tell you. So, the unrepentant Assyria, they're plotting against, they tried to plot against the Lord, didn't work. In their unrepentance, they had little hope of success of actually conquering Judah like, like they did in the past, uh, like they did with Israel in the past. Number three, unrepentant Assyria listened to terrible counsel. Look in verse 11. Looking back on this time of 701, when Sennacherib tried to come and God overthrew him, destroyed 185,000 of the Assyrians, it says in verse 11, for, you, for from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Who is this one person? I believe in the text it's talking about Sennacherib because he's the king of Assyria. And just so you kind of understand back in those days, if the king wanted to do something, it pretty much was going to happen. If the king's council said, this is what we do, then this is what you do. So the council is talking about is Sennacherib himself, which, by the way, how worthless of a counselor was Sennacherib? When everything fell, when he lost 185,000 soldiers, what does he do? Does he bow the knee to the one true God who, who I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't like he was ignorant of what he had done and what that of what Yahweh had done in Assyria 125, 150 years earlier, what does he do? He goes back to Assyria and worships the Powerade God. Then he falls. His own sons kill him, nonetheless. Yeah, and that was the counsel that Assyria got. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. By the way, here's what I find. When people are walking in ungodly repentance, please listen to this. They will listen to counsel that agrees with whatever their sinful heart wants. Listen to this. They will listen to whoever agrees with them. Now get me. If you want to know if you're getting good counsel, if you're walking in unrepentance, I would say this. 
whoever's being honest with you, that's the person who's giving you counsel. And if the person is giving you counsel from the scriptures and you don't like what they're saying from the scriptures or showing you, guess who's wrong? Guess who's wrong? Now, you may be saying, like, well, no, I read a book over here. Like, who cares about the book? What does the book actually has to say? Or I'll have people go, well, well, but I really feel like since when did feelings overthrow what the word of God has actually said about a subject matter? What happens when you're doing that? Well, this is what happens when unrepentant Assyria is doing what they're doing. What are they doing? They're listening to the terrible counsel of Sennacherib. Of course, you can't blame him. I mean, he's the king leading them. But do you understand the, the principle behind what I'm trying to say? You listen to, we listen to bad counsel when we're walking in unrepentance. That's why like, when you're in a vulnerable... And by the way, just so you understand, love counseling, love counsel, got a degree in it, still do it. Love it. Do it. But I will tell you this. People usually don't go see any type of counselor until they're in a vulnerable position in life. I mean, I, people don't usually go like, Nick, I, need to, I want to set a time with you because, man, life is just awesome. I mean, people don't do that. Like something, something big is happening in their life, something hard. And, and that's when they come. And here's the danger. At that point in life, you are very, very vulnerable. And whoever you let influence you in that moment, if they cannot tell you that they believe that the Bible is sufficient and God's final authority, you are in a vulnerable position, my friend. And you might go like, well, no, I have counselors that they'll tell me they're, you know, they, they believe in the Bible or the Bible contains and they'll kind of throw They'll, they'll give some scriptures. I'm like, no, here's the first thing. You go to a counselor, ask them, do they believe the Bible is sufficient, the final authority on all matters? And if they even stall for one second, that's not your person. But I will say this. You know what I've discovered when you receive counsel, when we receive counsel? What I've discovered is this. It's not wrong to go to counseling. It's good. I mean, that's part of what the scriptures have. But hold your place here, and I want to show you something interesting in Romans chapter four, uh Chapter 15. Romans 15. Look in verse 14. Do you know that really all of life is counsel? Like right now, do you know that you're receiving counsel? Like you got up and you came and and yeah, we're meeting together, but you're receiving counsel from this pulpit this morning. You are. You're receiving counsel in in the, the music. You're receiving counsel from each other. When you are in a discipleship group, in a small group, when you're having conversations, you're receiving counsel all the time. Now, what's interesting is we always think that counselors have to be this professionally trained person. I'm not against that. I've got that. But really, look in verse 14. Paul says to the Romans, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. It's interesting, that word instruct is a word netheteo, which means, which, which is a word of counsel. You're able to counsel one another. You're able to instruct. You're able to do what it takes in the moment. You're able to teach them. You're able to warn them, admonish them. You're, you're able to do all the things. So here's an interesting thing, what I find. When people are walking in a life of unrepentance, when they're walking in ungodly repentance, you know what they typically do? They run from good counsel from the body of Christ. Now get this. What's a way in your soul to know, man, am I walking in some ungodly repentance in this? Here's what will happen. You won't want to be around God's people at all. You won't want to be around God's people at all. In fact, the people who have like the most worn out Bible, you won't want to be around them. You get that? That's, that's where Sennacherib is. Ungodly repentance. By the way, just so you know, be careful the counsel you receive. A couple years ago, um, we were in Mexico at Reynosa doing our, our yearly mission trip. Um, and, and by the way, I now remember everybody. Y'all remember on that mission trip that Pastor Nick left a really big box of medical aid. Do y'all remember that? That big yellow box, right? Does everybody remember? I totally left it behind. 
And just so you know, that was like we every year when we go to Reynosa, you know, we, we actually had this really big medical box of supplies that we need just in case, you know, you get bit by a vampire or something like that. You can suck out the blood, just all the things you need. And I left it at, at, at in Reynosa. And it, by the life of me, I, I, like in my hand, I had that box right as we were leaving the last day when we were working at the small school, for those of you that have been there. And I remember having in my hand and, and going to the bus to leave. And I don't remember, like, how did I leave that there? This past week, it hit me. I, I now remember what happened. As we were going to the bus, I got a call on my phone. And I, I you know, so I answer it. And it's a person saying, you know, is this, is this Nick? I'm like, yeah, this is Nick. It's like, hey, I'm such and such. And we're doing a new counseling training. Um, and uh, I'd like to see if you're interested in this training. And I, and guess what? That's when I dropped the bucket and said, yeah, tell me more about this. And I remember this person saying, well, it's a new counseling technique using something called the Enneagram. And I was like, Enneagram? What's an Enneagram? That sounds yummy. (laughs) So I get home. I, I never even heard of the Enneagram before. I get home, look at it. I'm like, this is not good. I was like, well... I'll never deal with that one. Fast forward a couple years, almost a majority of Christians now, I mean, you ask them, like, what's your Enneagram? Well, I'm a seven with a wing, three. I mean, like, like completely all over the place. And what is that? That's taking counsel from the ungodly. Just so you know, as a side note, the Enneagram's not for you. <laughs> like, here's what you can do. Take any, any counsel that talks to you about the Enneagram, you can take whatever paperwork they gave you, and you can do this with it, and then you can throw it away. It has ungodly, it, it has cultic manifestations in its beginning when you follow its history. I may even spend time, but come talk to me if you want to talk more about it. But, by the way, that's why I dropped that medical box. So, not my fault, blame it on the Enneagram. <laughs> but I'll tell you that story to tell you this. Here's what happens when people read things like Enneagram... Myers-Briggs, other kind of profiles, you'll read it and you'll go, that's me! That's me! Why? Because the only reason you're reading that at that moment because something's going on in your life and you're trying to understand yourself. And what are you? You're in a vulnerable position in life. And that vulnerable position in life opens you up to get influenced by something. And it sounds good, but all errors in life mix a little bit of truth with a lot of error. And kind of that's, that's how you get deceived. When really, friend... Instead of the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs, whatever, you know what you needed? You needed the body of Christ. You needed people that know the book, that can love you, pray with you, talk to you. And if your soul in that moment is like, I don't want to be around them. Yeah, that's probably an evidence of ungodly repentance in your life. And guess what? Do the very opposite of what you feel like you want to do. It's like, Nick, are you telling me that I shouldn't just operate by my feelings? Yes, I am telling you that. Am I telling you feelings are bad? Absolutely not. Feelings, feelings are a part of our nature and who we are. Our own Savior felt feelings. But feelings don't drive our decisions. Feelings happen in response to our decisions. Now, what's interesting, um, you find in verse 11, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. By the way, I will tell you this. If, if you're going to let someone counsel you, take a look at their life. Take a look at their life. You're going to go to somebody, talk to them about your marriage, ask about their marriage. You know, ask about their worship. Very vulnerable to counsel. So here, here's Sennacherib gets judged here. He is an un, uh, a seer gets judged, unrepentant seer, because they listen to terrible, terrible counsel. So by the way, Let's look at verse 12 now. I'll have to get off the council one. Can you tell that this is like a really like sensitive subject matter for me? Right? I mean, like, you know, it, here's the deal. Because there's, there's a reason why I went and got a, a counseling degree years ago. Because here's what would happen. People in my church would come to me and they would go, hey, you know, Nick, will you counsel us? Okay. And then well, I get to a certain point, then I go, ooh, this looks a little too difficult for me. Um, you know, let me send you somewhere. I'd send them somewhere, and then they get terrible counsel. They'd make it worse. And then every time they come back, I just think to myself, like, no, the Word of God says something different from that. And remember, I thought to myself the whole time, well, what if people just followed what the Word of God said for them to do? Like, 
are you allowed to even do that? And I went and got a degree in biblical counseling all to understand by the very end, if you just knew the Bible, you would be a good counselor. I was like, man, that was an expensive lesson to learn. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) There's a place for technique and training, so I I don't bemoan it. It's good. I encourage it. By the way, I will say this from another perspective. The books you read and the things you listen to when you're vulnerable, be careful. You know that just everything on YouTube is not great advice? Y'all do realize that, right? It's because you can post it on YouTube doesn't mean it's great. Here's what you ought to do. I, I'm, I'm just telling you, I've been in this game way too long to see people walking this ungodly repentance, and they will find someone to agree with them no matter what their church says or what their pastors say or what the small group they're in. I cannot tell you how many small groups and discipleship groups I've seen where I've had a group leader come and go, this person was in it, but they got mad at us because we told them the truth and they left the group. Can't tell you how many times I've heard that kind of thing. That's ungodly repentance. That's, this is a Syria right here. So he's looking back, verse 9 through 11, I think really looking back of the events of 701. And now go to verse 12. Now, verse 12, I think he's now fast-forwarding forward of the future event of Assyria being destroyed. Wherever Nahum is writing this, remember, there's lots of speculation. I have my thoughts of the time era when Nahum is being written. But look at verse 12. We see this fourth thing. Unrepentant Assyria's pride will bring about their fall. Pride will bring about their fall. Verse 12, thus thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many... They will be cut down and pass away. So here's what I think. I think Assyria, the zenith of its power, historically was in 663 B.C. when they had conquered Thebes. Zenith of their power. And kind of like a, a pop, kind of like a boy band that gets to the top really fast. What happens if you get to the top of the charts really fast, right? You go down very fast, right? Kind of like new kids on the block, right? Aha! Did you hear that old name? Does anybody remember them? Remember how fast they came up? How, how, how they descended really fast? So here's Assyria. They rise up. They're at the zenith of their power. They, comp- they conquer Thebes. We see this in chapter 3, verse 8 of Nahum. That just leads me to believe. That's why it leads me to the time era. I think it was written. But aside from all that, here's what we see in verse 12. You're at full strength in many, but you'll be cut down and pass away. Well, here's what we find. If they were such a strengthened position on top of the mountain, when you get on top of the mountain, what is there a temptation to have? Pride, right? Now, the scriptures say after pride comes what? Fall. I mean, Jesus even says in Matthew 23, 12, whosoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whosoever humbles himself will be exalted. So unrepentant Assyria, they're full of strength. Even the Lord says, look, you're full of strength by earthly measures and many. But you're not stronger than I am. I'm going to cut you down. By the way, when a person's walking in ungodly repentance, where's one thing you're going to notice? They lift themselves up. It's all about them. It's all about them. They have bought into what's called the gospel of self. Self-worth, self-esteem, exaltation of self. And the word tells us that if you exalt yourself, God humbles that. And you don't want God to humble you. But what does it actually say? By the way, this is a evidence of godly repentance that you don't exalt self. And God, actually the word tells us that if you walk humbly, God exalts that. By the way, what does it look like to walk humbly? Life's not about you. I mean, how to assess if you or someone you're in relationship with is walking in godly repentance, you're going to see a humility in their life. How can you assess humility in their life? It won't be about them. It will be about Jesus and others. Their life will kind of look like what, what you get told at Chick-fil-A back in the day when you could go into Chick-fil-A before COVID. I always love going to Chick-fil-A and hearing that wonderful phrase. What was it? My pleasure. I love that. I always kind of said, like, Lord, I would love to just work there someday just so I can say my pleasure, but say it, like, really drawn out, like, it was my pleasure. You know, it's just something, it's some flair. I guess I don't have to work at Chick-fil-A to do that, but 
I just might do it now. Look in verse 12, the last of verse 12 through 13. So thus far, friends, we've seen Assyria plotted against the Lord in the past, the unrepentant, ungodly repentant Assyria. Ungodly, unrepentant Assyria had little hope of success. Unrepentant Assyria listened to terrible counsel. Unrepentant Assyria's pride brought down their fall. It was going to happen in 612. And then number five, unrepentant Assyria Assyria will no longer enslave any of God's people. Look in verse 12b. God says, though I afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. God says to Judah, he says, listen, I, I led Assyria. I led Assyria to come into the northern king of Israel and get them in 722. And I let them come as far as they came in 701. But that's it. No more Assyria. They're not going to, they're not going to trouble you anymore. It's done. Just so you know, historically, like Assyria was one of the most powerful empires ever. And they were, they were terrible in how they afflicted pain on people. It was nothing for them to kill, to kill your family in front of your face. He says in verse 13, And now I will break his yoke from off you, and I will burst your bonds apart. So God says, they're not going to enslave you anymore. No more. Not going to happen. Now, point number six. Verse 14. Unrepentant Assyria, he's a commandment breaker in the end. And why is all this coming on him? Because he's a commandment breaker. Look in verse 14. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. By the way, just so you understand, this is what it's personified Assyria. And it, although Assyria is being personified here, they're not hearing this actual message the Lord has given commandment about you. You get the idea that Assyria is not ignorant based on what had happened with Jonah about who the one true God is. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for your revile. That is never something you want to hear from God say, I will make your grave. You know, hundreds of years later, when um, Alexander, um, Alexander the Great was coming through there. Historians chronicle that it was such a wasteland when Babylon had overcome them in 612 that, that even when Alexander the Great was in Nineveh, he, he didn't even know it. He didn't even know it. There was such destruction. God had promised that would happen. Now in verse 14, why did that happen? Because they were commandment breakers. They broke the first three commands very easily. They had other gods, they made images, and they took the Lord's name in vain. And then pretty much if you start breaking those first couple of commandments, you're just going to break the rest. I mean, why does a person steal? It's in relation to the worship of God. Why does a person commit adultery in relation to God? I mean, that's how it all works. So we find that they are commandment breakers. They couldn't play the ignorant card. They couldn't even claim the card of we're an unreached people group. Not true of them. They were a reached people group. So here's calamity. It's coming on them because of their unrepentance. Calamity for the unrepentant. Well, good thing is this. We've got one more verse. We brought you all the way out here in the ice just to give you a lot of bad news. But now, how about some good news, right? How about some really good news? We'll look in verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains... The feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless, speaking of Assyria, pass through you. He is utterly cut off. What's interesting in verse 15? I don't, I mean, the book of Nahum is hard to try to place. And then at this moment to go, okay, wait a minute. Okay, Nick, I get the unrepentant Assyria and all they've done. I've got this, but I've been reading my Bible for a while, and things aren't too bright with Judah themselves, okay? They were up to a lot of mischief themselves. They deserve the same things. Oh, yeah, and they're going to get it in the end. Judah is going to get it from Babylon eventually in the end. In fact, by this time that this is written, Hezekiah was already told as a result of his disobedience and, and showing off the riches of Judah 
to try to impress Babylon after God had healed him of, 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 of after God had healed him of some kind of disease. But we find this. I, it doesn't say what the repentance of Judah in this. Now we can speculate maybe there was some repentance because of Josiah's reign, or maybe some people repented after Manasseh, although they still kept the high places according to scripture. But here's the deal. I, it doesn't the text doesn't give me all that. But I, I can tell you this, there were there was like King Hezekiah, a good king, but not everybody followed everything that Hezekiah had said do. And and so was Josiah later, and Manasseh had some repentance at the end. The, the text doesn't give me all that to know. Not even do I have a lot of confidence exactly when Nahum was written. But I don't have to know that to know what verse 15 is telling me. Because here's what I find. Calamity for the unrepentant. Promises online, here, everywhere. I can make this promise. Where there is unrepentance, there's going to be calamity. Doesn't matter who you are. going to happen. But I can promise you this. If there's any comfort, that came from the Lord. And that was his doing. And the obedience that may result in your life from here on, that's all a result of his grace. What's interesting, look at verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. What is it saying? It's saying locally is the day that Assyria is gone, which would be 712. Not happened yet, but it would happen. The day that it was gone, people are going to become running from the mountainside and they're going to be coming here telling you the good news that your enemy is gone. And then what does, then what happens in result to that? He says, keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows because the worthless enemy has passed from you. So what basically happens is when Assyria would fall, someone bearing the good news, the good news would come in and say, guess what? The enemy of Syria is gone now. We are now free to worship God, free to live for him. Let's go back to the feast. Let's now celebrate. Let's now keep and fulfill our vows. Let's now obey God. Do you see the gospel in any of this? By the way, that word good news, that's what the gospel is. It's good news. So what's happening here is really the good news is that as a result of God doing what only God does to the unrepentant, And only what God can do, the good news comes into Judah. And as a result of the good news, we see obedience, a keeping of the feast for Judah, fulfilling their vows. They're no longer fearful of Assyria. I'm so thankful that the good news of the gospel came into my life at age 16. And that now I can live an obedient life to God, not because that earns me salvation. That's because of the grace that's been brought into my life. I didn't choose God. God chose me. I didn't draw myself to God. God drew me. And even now, when we deliver the gospel, we're delivering good news to people. It's not us that's do. It's not. It's not us trying to co- convert people. The Lord's the one that's in control of all that. I love verse fifteen because it's a gospel verse. I mean, I I can't tell you all the background of of what because I don't know the time error, but I can tell you this. The good news gets proclaimed to Judah whenever this happens in 612. And the response is obedience. And what a great thing for us in our soul. For those of us who have repented, bowed the knee to Jesus, that was all a result of God's grace. All the comfort that God gives us is all to be pushed to him, not to us. There's nothing for us to boast about. Even the obedience that we're walking in now is a result of his grace. And look at the comfort The comfort of the good news. It brings peace. By the way, if you were to read and read Isaiah 57 2, who is a contemporary of Nahum, you, you know, if you, if you're kind of going with some of the time error that I'm in, you're going to find that, that, that man, you even see this good news coming. You, this, this feat of the good news. In fact, even Romans chapter 10, verse 14 to 15 talks about us, us bringing the good news to people. So what a comfort. Calamity. Calamity for the Assyrians, but comfort for God's people. And I'm thankful today as we take communion in a moment. I'm comforted when I take communion. And here's why I'm comforted. Not because of anything I do, because communion reminds me that good news has come into my life. That through the shed blood of Christ, got him absorbing the wrath of God in my place, I've got comfort. And here's what happens. When God reveals, like if you're online and you're kind of like, how do I know 
that I'm believing the good news of the gospel? How do I know that I'm believing this? I will tell you right now, as we're talking about it, you're thinking to yourself, I'm in. I want that. Jesus is king. He's my Lord. I believe that he has died for my sin. I still remember it for myself. I was sitting on this couch, this tan couch, very fluffy tan couch in my parents' in my parents' living room, reading the book of Romans, and all of a sudden this light bulb came up for me, and it was this, wait a minute, I deserve hell? I'm that bad of a sinner? Oh, wait a minute, there was an exchange, my sin for his righteousness? It was like a light bulb went off in my head. And I could do nothing else in that moment but say, Jesus, be my Lord and King. And you know what's interesting? After that, like I remember going to my room and just wanting to read my Bible. I remember like wanting to fellowship with God's people. I remember wanting to get baptized. I remember wanting to be obedient. And no one had even told me that. In fact, the church I was in didn't say anything about Jesus being Lord. It just talked about him being Savior. But something in my soul was like, he's Lord now. What is that? That's the good news coming. That's the good news inspiring me to want to to live in his commandments. So calamity for the unrepentant but comfort for those who've experienced grace. And if you've experienced grace, if I've experienced grace, what a great time to edify, take communion, and sing to him. Worship team, would you come and lead us in song? And then let's take some time to prepare our hearts for some body work. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that we've done justice to it. We've been accurate with it and that our applications have been of you, Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, let us praise you. Let us take communion and remember. As we take communion, if there is unforgiveness towards another brother or sister in Christ, may we confess it. And Lord, would you bless our time of edifying each other through prayer, through word, through scripture reading. Lord, bless that time. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.